Great. Well, are you ready to roll? I'm ready. Okay, cool. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Miller, editor of SolarView Magazine. And today I'm on location at the offices of Cinnamon Energy Systems in Campbell, California. And I'm joined by Barry Cinnamon himself. Thanks for doing the podcast with me today, Barry. Hey, right, my pleasure, Tom. It's a beautiful sunny day and the systems are cranking at full power. Totally. Um, as you may know, uh, audience, Barry is the host of his own weekly podcast, The Energy Show, and he is also a writer, thought leader, renewable energy advocate, and all-around solar expert, not to mention the founder and CEO of his own solar companies, Cinnamon Energy Solar and Spice Solar. Did Spice I get that Solar right? and Cinnamon Energy Systems. And Cinnamon Energy Systems, excuse me. Um, so I hit, I think I hit the highlights there, and, and I'm excited to dive in. So First off, Barry, back in January on the Energy Show, you did a prediction segment for the year ahead for 2019. And one prediction you made is that there is a recession on the horizon. So six months in, are we closer to that horizon? Uh, and what should solar contractors be thinking about to prepare for this inevitable? And are there any specific lessons you've learned from past recessions that you can share with us? Well, I'm not an economist, and even if I were an economist, uh, I think the statistics say that um, economists have successfully predicted nine of the last five recessions. Uh -huh. But um, when you look at there's this thing called the yield curve, and when the long-term interest rates are, are lower than the short-term interest rates, that indicates that there's usually going to be a short-term interest rate rise in the future, mm -hmm. and that would be it, uh, usually keyed by a recession. So I'd say that Fundamentally, with all the worldwide uncertainty that's going on and the trade issues and the supply chain tangles and the, the retraction from globalization, I think there's more than likely a recession. Even look at it statistically, we've had, I don't know, the longest industry growth, GDP growth ever in the country. So it's right. going to come to an end at some point. What does that mean for solar contractors in the solar industry, mm -hmm. in the storage industry? There's not a heck of a lot we can do about it. I'd say that there's more tangible short-term issues that really are going to affect our business planning, mm. i.e. the decline in the investment tax credit. Mm -hmm. That's one. The confusion and the supply chain constraints of supplies, of, of modules, of inverters, of racking and things like that. So there might be a recession, but we're so confused right now and so challenged by just these immediate issues, the ITC and, and the supply chain constraints that I'm not even worrying that much about a recession. Now, when we had the last big recession in 2007, what was really significant for the solar industry, at least on the residential side, mm -hmm. is there was no money. Oh, People yeah. didn't have home equity. So they couldn't borrow money. They were really feeling pinched. And the companies that did really well were the ones that were able to take advantage of lease and power purchase agreement financing. Mm -hmm. And so if there is a recession, the companies that offer that and companies that provide that just as a service, like Mosaic and Sonova, they're going to do really well. Right. So get your financing lined up. Another thing you predicted would gain a lot of traction in the market are VPPs. These are virtual power plants. Um, like you, I think these are very exciting. So again, six months in, are you starting to see traction take hold there? And maybe you can quickly explain for the audience what VPPs are and why solar contractors should be learning about this new technology. It's, it's interesting. So what a VPP is, a virtual power plant, is the ability to take a solar system combined with a battery and use that stored energy when the utility wants it and needs it. And the utilities are going to pay a premium for that, maybe five or ten times a year. Mm -hmm. So here in California, five or ten times a year, it's a really hot afternoon, and there's not enough hydro, and it might be cloudy a little bit, and the solar farms are down. And the price of power in that hour is going to spike. Mm -hmm. It might be a dollar a kilowatt hour, a dollar. 
whereas they're paying three cents a kilowatt hour from their solar farms. So in those cases, utilities are scrambling around for any source they can possibly find of energy. And networks of batteries, even a 10 kilowatt hour LG chem battery that might have five kilowatt hours of usable charge in it at that instant becomes quite valuable. Not one, but when you have a network of 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 of those, that can add up to some serious immediate energy. So a virtual power plant is when though that network, and it's got to be computer controlled and networked, is available for discharge when the utility wants it. And the utility is going to pay a lot of money for that. Mm-hmm. So that's what a VPP is. And you say, okay, well, gee, I don't really see anything about that. I'm not aware of it. Got to look at the paperwork and the contracts of your competitors very, very carefully. If you look carefully at the contracts from some of the major national installers, there's a term in there mm-hmm. that says if we put in a battery system, we may use some of that battery energy to support the grid. And so a lot of these agreements that are being signed by national companies have a term in there that say, hey, we can, we can suck a little bit of power out of your system, maybe five or 10 times a year. They don't, they don't qualify for how often, but that capability is there. And now when you're a big national company, you might have a thousand batteries in say the San Francisco area that you can tap five mega, five kilowatt hours of power. Mm-hmm. That becomes pretty valuable. So right. it's out there. It's, it's being, they will be monetized by national companies. And I think there's an opportunity for smaller companies to team up and, and monetize it in some way also. And then there are there are utilities around the country. There's, I think it's in Massachusetts and maybe Maine in the Northeast where they are actually installing batteries that are, that are there and designed to operate as VPPs. So Tesla's doing some of this also. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why utilities should support VPPs and some of the reasons why they don't? So that's a great question. So the reason why they support VPPs is in the example that I gave before where power may spike for an hour on a certain day at a dollar a kilowatt hour. Well, if utilities can buy the power from a network of a network of a thousand or five thousand batteries in a VP environment, VPP environment, and they might pay 50 cents a kilowatt hour, it's a win win. Yeah. The company that's kind of managing the VPP makes 50 cents. The utility saves 50 cents a kilowatt hour because they don't have to pay a dollar. And there are models, and I think the model that really should take place eventually is the customer also gets compensated for that. So absolutely, in, in this case, you know, if the utility is, say, is paying a dollar a kilowatt hour, um, the customer should be compensated in some way for that. Right. But we'll see if that eventually happens. And do, are the utilities dragging their feet? Do they want some control over this? Are they trying to develop systems of their own? Do you have any idea? Well, so these VPPs really serve as the same function as utilities putting in batteries in local substations. Well, that's kind of where I was driving at. You know, are they just looking to increase their battery substations? And so they're going to make VPP interconnections more difficult? That's, you know? that's exactly, you, you hit the nail on the head, Tom. That, uh-huh. That's probably the, the yin and yang of this is the utilities are looking for this cheap power and a VP represents one way to do that. But the other way to do that is if they get ratepayers to pay for storage systems and they get to ratepayers that. Right. So the utilities will profit more if they build their own storage infrastructure, but We'll see how the we'll see how things eventually roll out. In my view, I mean, especially here in California, where we're, we're starting to deal with these public safety power shutoffs, mm-hmm. people are looking for batteries, right? And you know, they're they're there, and we're not talking about a day when the power goes out. We're talking about a day when it's really really hot, and they need the power, and it's really a win win. Yeah. 
Great. Um, let's uh, switch up the conversation a little bit and talk about storage. Um, this is something that you've written on extensively. And I want to point people to an excellent article you wrote about the 10 biggest mistakes that you've made installing storage. And folks can find that article on Green Tech Media and also go over and listen to your podcast, which is great. I recommend them both for different reasons. There's a lot to dig in with those storage lessons learned. But here I want to hit on a couple of the mistakes you called out and ask you to go over those. The, the first was unexpected costs and its effect on profits. And the main categories you noted were communications issues, structural analysis needs, and rebates. Can you briefly run through your experience with unexpected costs as they relate to storage and the big ones uh, the solar contractors should be aware of? Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. And, uh, you know, first, it was hard for me to write the article because I had a lot more than 10 mistakes. So I just had to kind of boil down <laughs> the, the biggest 10. ones. Yeah. Um, biggest losers. So, yeah. And when we are talking about the biggest losers, those are the ones that hit uh, a solar contractor's bottom line. Mm -hmm. And and those are issues where kind of I would put them into two, two bins. One, it takes longer to do the installation than you expect. Mm -hmm. And th that's usually related to the backup panel wiring. We as solar contractors are pretty good at kind of figuring out how expensive it's going to be to put in an inverter, put solar panels on the roof. But when you're dealing with backup wiring, the customer is not really clear what they want either. And they want everything. So mm -hmm. they say, I want to back up 10 circuits. And you say you can only back up four and you compromise on six. It's, it's, there's a challenge to do that wiring. Um, so that's, that's, number, that's kind of the first category where the installation is more complicated than we thought. Right. Um, the second, the second category are what I would call kind of callbacks, mm. where there's an issue. You put it in and it doesn't work. the The customer finds out when you know during their first blackout that it turned on, but then it turned off right away. The backup wasn't working, and usually, almost always, that's because they're trying to pull too many amps from the backup system. Mm. The backup system's limited to the capacity of the inverter, and if you try and pull too much, the inverter says, "Hey, I can't go that fast," yeah. and it shuts off. And so, w once we've resolved those, the customers are, are pretty much universally happy and, and quite proud of the fact that they can watch TV and they're, they're watching the football game when there's a power outage. Right. Um, and, and kind of a, a hybrid of that, which is one of the biggest hassles, is the paperwork involved in getting the incentives for batteries is quite complicated. And also at the beginning, and I don't know how this is with other utilities, but PG&E's interconnection process for a battery was, was it, it took us like six months for the first few. Wow. Yeah. And now they, they've gotten it down quite a bit, haven't they? Yes. Yeah, so so the interconnection process is really, it's only a few months as opposed to, it's like a few days for the regular solar interconnection process. They've yeah. done a terrific job, but mm -hmm. they're still not doing too great on the battery side. But the so self-generation incentive program, in my view, is it's just very, very complicated. Yeah. And the the utility doesn't have a big incentive at all to make the process fast and easy. They actually want to make it more expensive for homeowners and businesses to put in batteries and they've succeeded by making the process take over a year to get a rebate check for for many customers yeah um i think one of the um the recommendations you made um was to make sure the rebate checks uh don't come through your own company right and they go direct to the consumer is that right yeah so so, into? so when a lot of a lot of solar contractors have dealt with rebates before, and the customers basically say, "Are buying a twenty five thousand dollars system?" And there's, I'm just making up numbers here, five thousand yeah. dollar rebate. I just want to pay you twenty thousand dollars. And on the surface, it's like, okay, I'll float that as a contractor for a month or two. But if you kind of float it for a year, right. this battery rebate I think started out at thirty five hundred dollars, and you're doing a lot of those, it becomes to be a pretty big 
receivable and it's hard to get. So the best advice is to have the customer get that rebate. Now, with the Esther program, it's even more important because it's not like there's one form and one time the customer has to do something. The customer has to do something like 10 different times. They have to sign the application and the commitment that's installed and an affidavit and a certificate that it's completed and a and final payment and then a, a, a claim form. And so if the customer already has their money, there's not a lot of motivation for them to fill things out so they the contractor will get the money. So my advice is send the rebate to the customer. You'll you'll get a better performance from them in order to get the money. Right. Um, a second thing that came through for me from your top 10 list was, and this wasn't actually uh, numbered, but it's, it's clear that, that it's between the lines there. Um, it's that storage is, has a learning curve to it. You know, and you need to be aware of the risks when adding it to your business. Um, I could see some businesses adapting well and some not so well. Can you talk a little bit about what types of solar contractors might be well positioned to take on storage? Or am I wrong? Is storage right for anybody at, at any stage of their business? It's it's definitely not ready totally for prime time. And, and the old time mm -hmm. solar contractors that were accustomed to putting in bat, you know, lead acid batteries with charge controllers and trace inverters or currently outback systems which work great mm -hmm. uh, those contractors are more attuned to the detail and the connections and the controls and the software and the extra wiring that's required for these for yeah. regular solar contractors who basically hang a inverter on the wall maybe put in an optimizer on each panel or just microinverters there's a lot more to it yeah um, now also for many larger contractors they've got a machine where they just kind of crank things out and throwing storage options in is going to really gum up the works. So the, they, a lot of them are being very, very careful to make sure that they found the solution that works for their business and also that it can meet the volume requirements that they have. I mean, heck, a year ago, there was a shortage of uh, Tesla Powerwalls. And two years ago, there was a shortage of LG batteries. Yeah. And so when you have a lot of customers that are waiting for those and there's a big delay, it's it kind of screw, screws up your business. So it, it requires research yeah. and talking to... Know, fellow solar contractors who have the experience. The vendors aren't going to give you the straight scoop. Yeah, right. And one thing you learned from Barry's article is that, you know, you ran into a situation where you were trying to hang a power wall maybe or, a, you know, a 200-pound battery on a wall and you found that there was a structural engineering requirement for that battery. So you had to go through all sorts of different it, hoops it, to get it, that figured out. You yeah, know? City of San Jose requires a structural analysis for anything that's installed on a wall that weighs over 200 pounds. Yeah. And so, first of all, we we don't put the batteries on the ground or on a pad. LG requires 24 inches off the ground. It's just also generally takes up more space. So we like to hang them on the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, but San Jose was requiring a structural analysis and an extra inspection to make sure that the lag screws were torqued properly and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. there's these things that, that add soft costs. Yeah. Learn your area and talk to people. Um. When homeowners are deciding to add storage to their install, what are you finding is the biggest driving factor behind that? That one's easy. And and by talking to customers, it becomes obvious that they're, the biggest driving factor is having backup power when there's a grid outage. Mm. And that was one of the epiphanies that, that I had. And I think it was an expensive epiphany for some some inverter companies who really expected that the initial customer demand would be driven not by providing backup power, 
because heck, we have such a reliable grid. Why do we need that? Mm-hmm. But their expecting expectation was that batteries would save the customer money by be, uh, the ability to time shift their their energy right. use. And lo and behold, what happened, at least with the early adopters, and at you know, a year currently, even two years ago, um, based on the difference between the peak and the off-peak electric rates, there wasn't enough of an economic incentive to really drive people to put in batteries. Yeah. And I, if I kind of conservatively, even now at the current current rates in California, if I conservatively try and figure out how much money the battery is going to save me, and I look at the simple payback on that, I end up with a simple payback on the battery that's about the same as the lifespan of the battery. So it's okay. But it's going to provide backup power. Yeah, and and it's an you know, emotional it's, thing. It's it's exactly it's emotional. It's meeting an emotional need. It's like somebody who wants to get a 500 horsepower engine in their car. You know, they're they're probably you know never going to use it, but it's nice to know that they can you know, spin right. the tires when they need to. Yeah, and and then you know just kind of taking it one step further because of the wildfire problems that we have in California. Now the PG&E sent out letters to customers last week and two weeks ago saying we're going to turn your power off. Right. Um, a few times a year. So be prepared. Yeah. Make sure that you have medications. And if there's something that needs refrigeration, make sure that you've got that covered and have like an emergency kit. And if you want to, get a generator. This is what pg is recommending, a generator. Now, yeah. I kind of find that ironic because <laughs> it's like you really should put in a battery. It's going to be way, way more efficient, more reliable and automatic. But um, those notifications are spurring interest in batteries. Mm-hmm. And companies that are providing those systems get the benefit but what? But you're kind of taking a step further. This analogy is a little bit, um, uh, once again, it's kind of a coincidence. But the, the the where there's smoke, there's fire. So right now there's the smoke of hey, there might be a power outage. But when those power outages start happening, people are really going to say, all right, now I want a battery. I couldn't watch TV over the weekend. Yeah. Or my or the stuff in my refrigerator melted. Yeah. And so those power outages are going to happen in PG&E territory. We know it's going to happen because they don't want to burn down another town. Sure. And it's going to become more common. Just to put uh, a bow on the storage conversation, where do you think we are as an industry uh, and what's it going to take to get full adoption? So I kind of look at the, the product adoption curve and I look at the customers who are buying batteries now and they're the same customers who bought solar in 2001, 2000, 2002, 2003. We're at the really early adopter stage. Right. And it's amazing. I mean, I just remember profiling my customers in 2001, and they were they were engineers with a beard, shorts, and sandals. <laughs> and God is my witness. My first two battery customers a couple of years ago were exactly. I mean, they had beards, shorts, sandals. You know, I want to get a battery because it's a cool thing, and yeah. you know, I want to power my servers if the power goes down. <laughs> so that's where we are. What is it going to take for it to be, to, to really become widespread? Um, it's going to take two things. There's going to be more compelling need for it, which is going to be the, the public safety power shortages. Mm. And the, most importantly, the prices have to come down a lot because the prices are really high. Yeah. And that's not just because the, it's not just the batteries. The batteries, you can have the battery price to be zero. It's still going to be kind of expensive. So all the soft costs, the peripheral equipment, the permitting, those things have to be reduced as we've mostly done with solar over the years. Yeah. Okay, to start to wrap up here, we began the conversation uh, talking about 2019 and what you saw for the year ahead. You mentioned how VPPs were very exciting to you. Is there anything else in particular that you're keeping an eye on at the moment or maybe something that's occupying a lot of your brain space right now, a challenge or a puzzle? Uh, You know, what's top of mind for the rest of the year and moving into 2020? 
Well, well, as far as these like brain teasers and things like that, I, I crushed my Rubik's cube 25 years ago. I just couldn't stand the darn thing. So, but what, what I, I never solved one of those either. <laughs> I'm geezing now. Yeah. But what I'm thinking about now is um, we're, we're in a terrific solar selling environment. Mm. Um, the, the ITC is stepping down a little bit, so that gives customers have an incentive. There's interest in battery systems, but but also when we look at the solar industry, these these selling cliffs often create supply constraints. So the manufacturers are all probably doing the best they can to make sure that there's enough inverters and there's enough modules, but then there's enough control boards and little little gadgets, little parts of a solar system that without that little part, you know, for a battery storage system, you need, you need a you need an auto transformer in some cases. And, you know, you might have all the inverters and batteries you need. You don't have enough auto transformers, you're DOA. So, um, and, and that's kind of normal in an industry that's growing. But what really worries me more is what's going to happen with global supply chain? Is there going to be a tariff? Well, like every week we have tariffs on China or Mexico or somebody else or not. And that really makes it difficult for manufacturers to, to, to really predict supply, and it makes it really hard for contractors to plan for what they need. So the bigger the contractor, the more important it is for them to make sure that they've got supply locked up, and really nobody knows what's going to happen. So that kind of worries me. I know we're going to be growing throughout the year. How do I plan my purchases so that I'm going to have enough product to install in September, October, November, December um, at the end of the year when everybody else is kind of going through that same constraint? So that's... Mm -hmm. That whole global supply chain thing, because it's indeed a global industry, worries me a little bit. And, and I don't, I, candidly, I didn't even have a remedy yet. Yeah. Do you feel like that's um, not a good indicator for, for U.S. manufacturing in general, continuing on? Yeah, it's really tough to manufacture in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, you, companies need to make, I mean, the payback is a five years when you're going to build a, a manufacturing facility. And so it's really hard to figure out, is that a worthwhile investment? I mean, heck, Apple just decided this week to stop making their their one of their Macintosh computers yeah. in the U.S., and now they're going to make it in China. You know, so we'll see how the president reacts to that. Um, yeah, when it comes to this whole supply chain thing, I, I kind of bring it around to, you know, my company, I, I like working with distributors. That's why Baywa is, you know, the, a great company there. So. As far as contractors and what I'm doing with my Baywa salesperson is I'm just trying to coordinate with them and say, hey, this is what I think I'm going to need. Put in some, some orders and, and I'll try and get as many of my plans in, in my distributor's mind as possible so that when I need that product, I have the ability to get it. And that's also going to help the distributors place orders with, their, with the manufacturers. Right. Okay, well, final question, then I'll let you go. Um, the solar industry is, is still quite young. It goes up and down, as we all know. There's so much to learn all the time, new technology, a lot of complexity to deal with. Thinking about the younger generation coming up, why is now a good time for them to dive into solar? Or for those who have been in the industry a while, you know, why should you stay and, and continue on? Give me the Barry Cinnamon take on, on why solar is a great industry to be in right now. You know, it's funny. I, I started in solar when I was the younger generation. So now I'm the older generation. And, and I look at what the penetration is of, of rooftop solar right now. It's probably just like a few percent. And the penetration of batteries is negligible. So there's going to be a, a whole-scale transformation of our power industry. And that's that's an exciting industry. That's an exciting place to be. Um and, and I know in California, there's a big push to electrify buildings and transportation. Transportation is, I think, 
about 41% of buildings or 26% of our electricity, of our, of our, of our greenhouse gases. So there's going to be a whole scale transformation of every, everything in buildings is going to be electric. And that's going to create even more demand for both rooftop solar and battery storage because you're going to want to run those things at night. And I'm looking at doing that transformation in my own house and getting rid of all my gas appliances and putting them all electric. So yeah. that, you, know, you just look at the housing stock. You look at what's going to tra- change in, in the world. And, and uh, it's exciting to be a young person interested in, in renewable energy because it's really the industry of the future. Yeah. Those are all my questions. Thanks so much for taking the time and hosting me here. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Great. Great. Thanks for coming by, Tom, and say, you know, say hi to my friends over at Baywatch. It's always a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please check out Barry's show, The Energy Show. It's available on all your podcast platforms and on Barry's website. And check out his writings in Green Tech Media, Renewable Energy World, and on his blog at Cinnamon Energy Systems. Uh, that's our show. See you next time.